0: Start with a map, guys. Uh, This is a modern-day map, Black Sea area, so if you see the inset, it sort of puts it in perspective between Turkey, East Europe, and Russia. Four or five years ago, Russia invaded uh, Crimea, which is that area that extends from Ukraine into the Black Sea, invaded, took it back over, and it wasn't the first time that that area had uh, sort of been a point of contention between Mother Russia and others, in 1854, one of the most famous military charges in history occurred in exactly that same spot in Crimea. And that's when the Ottoman Empire, a little bit in its waning day, but they teamed up with France and Britain and they were battling Russia in the War of Crimea It was both land-related, but it was also related to protection for the diverse religious groups that were present in that same area. And again, one of the most famous battle charges in history occurred there in 1854, so put yourself sort of in perspective. This is pre-Civil War, so cannons and artillery and horseback. And what happened was a British light brigade force of 670 mounted men, their armors were lances and swords, and they charged two or three miles down a valley, no protection around them, before them, behind them, into the mouth of an entrenched Russian fort. Um, These guys were dug in in holes, they had artillery, they had cannon, and 670 men on horseback with swords and lances went into the jaws of death, literally, in this charge, on this position. Now they all knew, even when they started, somebody made a mistake. This is not what we should be doing. And the command had been to keep the Russians from taking back armament that these allied forces had secured earlier. And somehow, as that was being communicated, the Light Brigade was instead sent against the fortified position instead. So 670 men started. After the charge was over, less than 200 men were still on their mounts. 118 killed, 127 wounded, 60 taken captive. And of course, if you know any poetry from the past, British especially, this charge was immortalized by Alfred Tennyson in his poem, The Charge of the light brigade this is by the way it's an outstanding image and listen to just his opening stanza on this he wrote forward the light brigade was there a man dismayed not though the soldiers knew someone had blundered there's not to make reply there's not to reason why there's but to do and die into the valley of death road the 600 The charge itself, of course, was a total disaster in the moment, but what happened over time was that the reputation of British cavalry rose dramatically because of that. And and think about it for just a minute. You've got a group of truly heroic, brave men in an assault everyone knew could not succeed, absolutely knew it. Courage in the face of opposition, bravery in the face of death, faithfulness when defeat was inevitable, One of the guys wrote in his own memoirs of this, as he was riding his horse, he was directly in front of a cannon, and he saw saw them light the charge on the cannon, and he was waiting to enter eternity, and it took the guy in the saddle next to him off his horse. It killed the guy next to him, but it was that kind of a ferocious tirade they rode into. French Field Marshal Pierre Bouquet was there, and he was up above the valley looking down, seeing all of this, He said, this is magnificent, but it is not war. In other words, it was a slaughter. It was obvious that it was a mistake. But the concept that, and this might seem trite today. You know, all of us are basically our own God. We make decisions for ourselves. We take orders from no one. If you tell me to do something, I'm going to ask you five reasons why and how and why should I do that. This was still in a day in which faithfulness to the cause, faithfulness to the commanders or the commanding authority was still a given. And it might seem quaint by us today, but there's a lot to be said for that. Faithfulness, because a command was given, a legitimate command was given, even though we know it's a mistake, the command's given, and we will do whatever it takes to fulfill the command. Faithfulness like that is a rare rare thing today. That's introduction to the 39th message in the Heroes and Villains series. And you remember we're looking at heroes. People who have displayed Christ-like faithfulness. We say all along what we want to do is remind ourselves that Christ is our life. In fact, this will come up in the Sunday School series. Christ in us is our hope of glory. We are looking, in fact, again, in the language of Colossians 3, we want to put off our old sinful self. We want to put on Christ. And part of that process for us is, what does the faithfulness of Christ to the Father look like? And we see that in elements of these lives of Old Testament saints and later New Testament. None of it perfectly in their lives, of course, and none of it perfectly in our lives either. But what does that look like? What should we aspire to in our own lives in Christ-like faithfulness? And this morning we're looking at Jeremiah. Jeremiah serves during Judah's decline and Jerusalem's destruction. He starts in good King Josiah's reign, but but after Josiah dies, everything goes downhill. And Jeremiah knows he has a long ministry. His book is a little tough to get through. It's 52 chapters long. It's lengthy, and it's not in chronological order. And it's one of the reasons why the prophets are difficult for most of us. But it's worth our time. We're going to key in just on two key elements of his life this morning related to faithfulness. But from Jeremiah, what does faithfulness look like when life as you know it is falling apart and likely to continue to do so? In other words, you could be as faithful as you know how to be to God's call on your life and know things aren't going to get better from my investment, they're going to get worse. That the impact of my faithfulness might be negligible as far as I can determine in my life and time. What do we do? What does faithfulness look like when we share the truth with those around us and we get only rejection from it? Because that's Jeremiah's existence. What does faithfulness look like when the nation you call home or the church you've called home or your own family rejects God's call says we've got a better idea we're going someplace else and that's not it put this in big picture again just on a timeline hopefully when we're done everybody has some sense of of sort of uh, time so abraham remember we said it's about do you remember anybody remember abraham 2000 bc the exodus if you just say 1400 it's close enough we get to david we say a thousand sort of some big hangers for us We got into the prophets, middle 800s for Elijah and Elisha, middle 700s for Isaiah and Hosea. And with Jeremiah, we come down to 627. We can date that with a fair amount of certainty. And he lives through the captivity and at least just after to 586 B.C. So big picture there. And guys, the two main points for our purposes with this element of Christ-like faithfulness. The first is this, the willingness to be used by God while recognizing our own inadequacy. Jeremiah, like many of the folks God uses throughout Scripture, he didn't want the job God was giving him. He basically said, I'm not your man. And God said, well, actually you are. That willingness to recognize I'm not adequate for what God's called me to do. This can take place in a number of different ways. We'll talk about a few. And saying, but I'll be faithful anyway. And the other one is remaining faithful in the midst of decline in spite of rejection, when hopes sink. You know, during Josiah's reign, there was the last gasp for the nation of Judah. You remember, after Solomon, we've got a northern kingdom and it's gone. 722. You get down into Jeremiah, and Jeremiah knows, and Judah, the southern kingdom, is going down too. What if the U.S. is on our last gasp? Or what if the church that, it, not necessarily we call home, I hope it would never happen here, but. Or another church or your family what if the folks that we're interacting with are chucking the faith also or just even rational thought our, our nation is becoming more and more detached from reality just like this time in which you look at the lives of others and you say how could they think that but we do it too and our culture certainly does it too so what does it look like if things don't get better what if they only get worse in and around your life, what does faithfulness for us look like related to that? If you've got your Bible, we're in Jeremiah 1, verses 1 through 10, and that's page 627 in the Pew Bible. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests, who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. And Sorry guys, but I'll make some brief comments through these 10 verses. So, Jeremiah is a priest as well as a prophet. He doesn't serve as a priest as far as we know. It's strictly a prophet. But he's from that tribe and he lives in Anathoth, that priestly village just north of Jerusalem. So he grows up in the shadow of Jerusalem and everything that's occurring there. To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. Now we know that 627 B.C. with a fair amount of certainty came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. And that would be 586 B.C. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That speaks a lot to the humanity of the unborn, doesn't it? Before you were conceived, I knew you. In the womb, I called you and I appointed you. certainly also speaks to God's right to call you or me to whatever He wants. He made no apologies to Jeremiah about this. So Jeremiah responds, verse 6, I said, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak, and I'm only a youth. And the Lord said to me, don't say, don't you say that, I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. God says, this is not an option. I'm telling you what you will do. Don't be afraid of them. I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. This is certainly similar to the imagery in Isaiah 6 when God touches Isaiah's mouth with a coal. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And if you've read Jeremiah, you know God speaks not only to Judah but to the nations around. And by Jeremiah's word, God is indicating what he is doing with the nations, Judah and the nations around them. Now Jeremiah starts by saying, hey, I don't think I'm up for this call. I'm young and I don't speak well. And we're guessing he's in his late teens or maybe even early to mid-twenties. Remember, priests started at 30 years old. They could start in the priestly activities. He's younger than that, obviously. He doesn't feel equipped. So we're guessing late teens or early twenties. And he also says to God, I am not your man. I don't speak well and I'm young. I've got two strikes against me and I don't want to do this. I'm not your man. Would you please go get someone else? Now to this, yeah, to this, uh, God doesn't need someone who's eloquent and he doesn't need someone who's old. He just needs someone who'll be faithful to say what he says. That's all he needs. So Jeremiah doesn't have to be old and he doesn't have to be eloquent. All he's got to do is be faithful. God said this. This is what God says. That's all He needs. Nothing more than that. Have you ever been called to do something that you knew you were simply not equipped for? But you had to do it anyway. Uh, You know, for some of us, you get married and you realize, I'm not ready for this. Or we have kids and we say the same thing. I didn't know it would be like this. Or we take a job and realize, man, we're in deeper than we realize. You know, what do we do? And as Christians... Everybody's going to face some of these. But as Christians, how do we face those times and places, those responsibilities where we're like, Lord, I am not up to the task. That's what Jeremiah was getting into. You know, one of the the common threads you see throughout the Bible is that God intentionally picks people who don't have what's needed to accomplish His purpose. And of course, He does that so they know and everyone else knows it's God whose power is at work, it's not theirs. Now, Paul, in the New Testament, he makes it clear, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 through 29. And guys, he's writing to a people that are a bit like us. They're proud. They think more highly of themselves than they should. And so they're thinking it's mistaken. And so Paul says to them, God chooses what's foolish in this world to shame the wise. See, they thought they were wise, but God chose them. And God says, he's really saying, You guys are foolish, and that's why you're mine. He says God chose what's weak to uh, to shame the strong. He chose the low, the despised, the things that aren't, to bring to nothing, to the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So when we stand before God at the end of the day, the question is faithfulness. It's not eloquence. It's not personal ability. It's not intellect. It's not academic acumen. It's none of those things. It's just faithfulness. Moses does this sound familiar by the way Jeremiah God says hey you're my man and the response is I don't speak well well that's Moses you remember Moses says I don't speak well my tongue is slow I don't my speech is slow you don't want me I'm not your man and but that would be the point right and so Moses becomes God's key spokesman to Pharaoh and Egypt and Israel he pens the first five books of the Bible Moses who said, I'm not your man. He is God's man. And God uses him. and Of course, he's transformed in the process. You think of Jesus' disciples. They're fishermen. They know how to fish. They're not orators. They're not trained the way the Pharisees or Sadducees would have been. But they become the church's theologians. And they're the ones who proclaim the gospel through the Roman world of their day. Jesus didn't need them to be gifted intellectually or otherwise though he uses that he just got a bunch of fishermen he got the losers Paul calls Christians the offscourings off scourings of the earth that's who God chooses that's who he's delighted to use you remember Paul's protege Timothy he was like Jeremiah he's a young guy and he's timid and he's fearful but Paul has sent him on his missions and he's like man you gotta come through 2 Timothy says, you know, light the fire, get some fire in the belly again for this thing. You can't stop. And he tells him, don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness because you're young. I've sent you, Paul says. You're my spokesman and I'm God's spokesman. So he says, don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness. You prove to them that you're an example of godliness, of Christ's likeness. God is always choosing people who are inadequate for the task, but that would be the point. What he really needs is simply someone to be faithful. Now at some point, to some degree, Jeremiah gets this because you see in Jeremiah 16, 19, Jeremiah says this. He says, O Lord, or Yahweh, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. He comes to grips, God, you're my strength. I'm not my strength. And when I'm in trouble and he had loads of trouble, He said, you're my refuge, you're my safe fortress. You're the one I can count on. It's not other people, it's not myself. I can count on you and I do. Now friends, it's liberating to recognize that we don't and we can't accomplish God's work or God's will based on ourselves. I'm liberated. I don't have to accomplish anything, neither do you. All we have to do is be faithful to the one thing God gives us to do, That one conversation, that one act, that one work, all we do is bring our faithfulness as much as we know how because it's God's Spirit, God's power, and God's Word that He'll use to bring about His ends. All He needs from us is the same thing He needed from Jeremiah. It's just to be faithful. If we're ill-equipped, if we think we're not up for the job, we're probably the perfect person for God to pick up and use. If we think we're adequate guys, we're probably not. We're probably not. What task has God called me to for which I am unqualified? And this could be anything. And if you haven't experienced it yet, you will. So think about that in the future. You can call to mind, I'm not up for this. And that's exactly what God will use in my life. Then I'm not up. God will come in and show himself strong on my behalf. What are some of God's promises that speak to that task and my need? One of the things Paul told Timothy was, that Scripture is inspired and it's profitable and it's knowing God's Word that makes us adequately prepared for the good works God means us to be a part of in the future. So this would be one of those things where we say again and again and again, read your Bible, read our Bible. It's the knowledge of God's Word that equips us for so much of this. So if we get in a situation, Lord, I don't know what to do, Let's get in the scriptures. Let's read. Let's ask God to direct our eyes to that portion of His Word that speaks to our need. It's there. And then we can simply pray Lord, I trust You. I trust Your Spirit. I trust Your promises. I trust You're at work. Even though I don't know how You're going to use me, I trust You're involved, and I'm going to trust You to get done whatever it is. I'll just show up, and I'll be faithful in the ways I know how to be. The second point is another, starts with another brief historic tale 1912 the largest ship in the world the titanic on its maiden voyage coming across the atlantic from england uh struck an iceberg as you know and it sunk now the boat was magnificent it was the best boat in the world and it could have survived four of its watertight sections to have been pierced or punctured and floated but it, it it missed five and that's why it sunk Now, about 1,500 of the 2,200 or so passengers died. And while the boat was very well built, it was certainly state-of-the-art in its day, it was not set out for failure. And so they had carriages all over the ship that had no lifeboats in them. They had less than half the lifeboats that the ship was meant to carry. And when they struck, and it became obvious this ship is in trouble, the lifeboats that initially went into the water weren't even full. So a lot of people lost their lives that night. Well, when it became obvious that the ship was going to go down, there were two musical groups on board the ship, a trio and a quintet, and they got together, and in two different settings on the ship, knowing everybody here that didn't get in a lifeboat, they're going to die. We're going into these cold waters, and they know they're facing their imminent death. And so these eight musicians, while the ship was sinking, and you'll see this relived in the movies, they really did, they played till the ship sunk and they died. And they did it so that they would calm the other passengers that were facing the same fate they were. That's why they did it. And they were faithful to the end to be helpful to others in the way that they could until they drowned. They knew there was no getting out of it but they just played to the end. Some say it was near my God to thee. One, one person that was near there said that's what he heard them playing. Another said, no, it was another hymn called Autumn. I Think a French tune. But in either event, these guys know they're dying. They're about to die, but they remained faithful to help others as long as they could. And the ship sunk and they died and they drowned, but they stayed faithful till the end. It's one thing to be faithful when things turn out well. So you say, man, we've been at it hard. We've been faithful. And there's victory. There's success. Something good is happening. There's some some new thing or some improved thing. But what does faithfulness look like when things are not going to get better? When they're going to get worse? And maybe not a little worse. Maybe a lot worse. Because that was Jeremiah's life. And he knew it. And he was faithful to the end. Jeremiah's call was to go down with the ship, which was Judah. So, just brief history for Jeremiah. He starts, he's a young man, teens or twenties, in 627 B.C. Now for the next 18 years, good King Josiah is on the throne. And Josiah is a godly king. He's the last godly king. He's a good guy. He institutes reforms back to the law. They have the Lord's, or not the Lord's Supper, they have Passover again. Again. Which age am I in? <laughs> am I, am I old, old or new covenant? <laughs> um, but the revival, it's short-lived and it's shallow. And Josiah, ill-advisedly, in 609 BC, goes out to meet Pharaoh Necho, who's coming up the Mediterranean coast to face the Babylonian army up north of Israel. And Josiah goes out to fight him. And guys, we have no idea why. He he shouldn't have. In God's providence, somehow it all makes sense. When you read the story in 2 Kings of Josiah's death, you'll know that it's exactly point by point, the same story, the plot line, as wicked king Ahab from Israel. So Josiah goes out to battle. Necho says, don't do it. My fight's not with you. I'm just going up north. Josiah says, nope, we're fighting. So Necho says, okay. So Josiah disguises himself, he's in his chariot, and guess what happens? An arrow that he doesn't see pierces him. He says to his charioteer, I've been hit, get me out of the battle, and he dies. Same as Ahab, exactly the same point by point. So 1609, Jeremiah had 18 years where a godly king was on the throne. So he's still telling the folks what's coming, judgment's coming, but he's at least got this backstop, which is Josiah. But Josiah's gone at 1609. And for the next 22 years, he serves under two kings who are both wicked. 11 years apiece. When Josiah dies, his son Jehoahaz is a ruler for three months. And Necho comes in and takes him prisoner. Says, you're not going to be on the throne. Takes him to Egypt captive. That's the end of his life. Puts his brother Jehoiakim on the throne. He lives for 11 years. And God says he performs abominations. He dies. Jehoiakim dies. His son Jehoiachin follows him for three months. Nebuchadnezzar comes, takes Jehoiachin captive to Babylon and puts his uncle, Josiah's other son, Zedekiah, on the throne. He rules for 11 years until Jerusalem is destroyed. And it says of him, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I'd be remiss to point this out. Zedekiah is double-minded and right near the end the very end of his 11 years when Jerusalem is going to be sacked he calls Jeremiah secretly and he says hey what do you think what should I do and Jeremiah even at that point after all God has said Jeremiah says if you'll humble yourself if you'll submit to the king of Babylon you'll be saved and the city will be saved and he says well I'm afraid to because I'm afraid the Judeans who've already gone to the Babylonians they might abuse me And so he doesn't. And you know what happens to him? It's a tragic, tragic story. The scripture had recorded that the king of Judah would go to Babylon but never see it. That's an odd prophecy, isn't it? And do you know how it was fulfilled? When the city is sacked, he he flees from the city on horseback and he's captured in the plains and he's taken to Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar has his sons all executed in front of his eyes, and then he blinds him. He wanted the last thing, this king who refused. By the way, Zedekiah proved f- faithless because he'd made a covenant with Nebuchadnezzar to obey Nebuchadnezzar, and he broke his word. He was faithless. So he went to Babylon. He went blind. He never saw it, but he got there. And the last thing he saw was his son slaughtered before him, because he didn't do what God said. Jeremiah in the last minute said, if you'll humble yourself, it'll be okay. And he basically said, I won't do it. He was faithless to the end. So Jeremiah's got 18 years of Josiah, then he's got 22 years under wicked kings. And like the Titanic, guys, there's no doubt where this place is going. So remember, this is is Jeremiah's home. Judah is his home. He didn't want it to go down, but it's going to. And guys, this is something for us as Christians as well. (laughs) You remember Jeremiah? There's a verse that's routinely quoted, and it's quoted from the captivity to seek, I think it's Jeremiah 9 maybe, uh, seek the welfare of the city that you're in. That's written to the captives in Babylon. Well, they're in the safe place. They've been taken captive and they're going to live. They can live there to a ripe old age. But that's not what Judah is going to get. And sometimes we need to be careful. When we pray that God's judgment fall, remember that it will fall on you and the people around you that you care about too. Be very careful when we pray about God's judgment coming on this wicked nation. If God says it will, it will. But that's, that's not God's first desire for any of us judgment. And it certainly shouldn't be our first desire for the, the place we call home. Here or elsewhere. I think sometimes we we take that thought lightly in a way we shouldn't. And certainly in a way Jeremiah never did. Listen to this. Jeremiah 16 verses 3 and 4. So what does the sinking ship look like for Judah? Well, he says uh, concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place. Concerning the mothers who bore them. The fathers who fathered them in this land. They're going to die of disease. They won't be lamented. There's going to be no funeral. They won't be buried because the city will be under siege. They'll be like dung on the surface of the ground. They're going to perish by the sword and famine. Their bodies will be food for the birds of the air, beasts of the earth. It's going to be terrible. The city's going to be under siege and you'll die and you won't be able to get out to the funeral places and the hills. These bodies will be like cordwood stacked up like you've seen perhaps in historic recounts of famine or pestilence in a land. That's what's coming, Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 21 says this, God says, I have set my face against this city for harm, Jerusalem. Not for good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. That's what's coming. This is Jeremiah's ship. This is his Titanic, if you will. Jeremiah 15, 1 and 2 say this, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me. Moses, you know, the intercessor for Israel... Moses, who said, Lord, kill me, but spare your nation. And God did, right? Didn't kill Moses, but spared the nation. Though Moses and Samuel stood here, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight, let them go. And when they ask you, Jeremiah, well, where should we go? This is what you tell them. Pestilence, sword, famine, or captivity. That's what you get. That's where you're going. You're going to die by the sword in warfare, by pestilence in disease, by no food, by famine, or you're going to go captive. Those are your options. Twenty-two times God speaks of the certainty of judgment in those terms, sword, famine, pestilence, or captivity. Those are your options. Three times God tells Jeremiah not to pray for Judah. Jeremiah 7.16 says, As for you, don't pray for this people. Don't lift up a cry or prayer for them. Don't intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Three times in Jeremiah. These are the verses that the notorious church group in Topeka put on their placard when they're picketing on the corners. It's from Jeremiah. Five times Jeremiah talks about Tears, his tears pouring out over Judah's destruction. He is not happy about proclaiming God's destruction on God's people. Listen to this from Jeremiah 9.1. Oh, that my head were waters, my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He says, I don't have enough moisture in my head to pour out the tears that I would cry for the death of all those people who belong to Israel and Judah. I would just weep and weep and weep. And in contrast to that, 34 times Jeremiah describes God's anger against Judah. You remember in the earlier prophets, he said, in fact, in Hosea, he said, I'm going to take Israel down, but I'm going to spare Judah. Well, that was only for a period. And now Judah's turn has come. In fact, I think it's in Ezekiel, it says, Faithless Judah has proven worse than Israel because Judah saw God take Israel captive and Judah didn't repent. They simply furthered the same kinds of sins for which God had taken Israel out. Jeremiah is faithful in tears and anger to declare God's word. He's rejected and he's abused for his efforts and he knows that he is part of the judgment that's coming. He's in the coming judgment. He had no comfort from a wife or a family because God told him, you're not free to marry. This is not a time for you to have a wife and family. He was beaten. He was imprisoned for his faithfulness to God. He was put in a muddy cistern like being buried alive almost. He sinks down in this mud in a cistern. He suffered through the siege of Jerusalem and then the destruction of the city. He lived through the siege and he was given the choice to stay in the land or go to Babylon. Now remember, staying in the land would be tough because the Babylonians have wiped everything out. This is not a great place to be at the time. It would have been very challenging, but he'd still be in the land of promise. Well, he chose to stay in Judah. And what happens next? He's kidnapped. He's taken captive by rebellious Jews who kill the governor that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they forcibly take him with them to Egypt where we assume he died out of the land of promise in egypt now <laughs> are we depressed <laughs> adequately i hope so this yeah and guys as bad as this was god says far far worse is coming upon the earth in the future i don't know how far off it is but far far worse is coming here's a contrast and this is an upside So Jeremiah, doom and gloom. It's one of the reasons people don't read the prophets. Doom and gloom, judgment. And and it just gets repeated and repeated and repeated. But isn't it interesting? In the middle of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, there's a promise made that you and I live in the benefit of today. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and one of the guys reads from Luke's Gospel where Jesus says, this is the blood of the new covenant that I institute in my blood what were those disciples thinking of they were thinking of jeremiah because when jesus says i'm instituting a new covenant they knew god had said through jeremiah one day i'm going to make a new covenant this is jeremiah 31 verses 31-34 through god says i'm going to make a new covenant with the house of israel and the house of judah it won't be like the old covenant that i made with their fathers on the day when i took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. You remember the old covenant is made, the ten words are given on stone tablets. And the law, the covenant there was, if you do these things, if you obey, you'll get blessing. If you disobey, you'll get cursing. And if you read the end of Deuteronomy, it's, it's, it goes on and on and on about what the cursing would look like. And part of it is captivity into foreign nations, which is exactly what God does Under Jeremiah, this is the contrast. The new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in them, I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That will be a reality. No longer will each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, like we would say, read your Bible, get with it, you know, slacker. Nope, they won't have to, for they'll all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will give their excuse me, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's in the middle of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah was a difficult call to faithfulness in his youth and into old age. He's in the midst of a faithless people. He's imprisoned, slandered, a captive of the Babylonians, then of his own people. God's judgment fell, no one escapes, and Jeremiah goes down with the ship, just like those musicians on the Titanic. Now, in tears and in anger, Jeremiah is faithful to the end. And guys, we don't, want to, we don't want to forget, Jeremiah is not the sum of faithfulness. He's a great and sterling example, but all these guys, of course, ultimately point to Christ himself. Jesus was rejected by those he came to save, like Jeremiah, but served them anyway, John one eleven. These references are on your study sheet. He wept over Jerusalem and the impending destruction he knew was coming. Luke fourteen or 19.41 He was also angry and he expressed that anger over Israel's sin and longed to see God's judgment fall. Luke 12.49 He was faithful to the end, rejected by Israel and Gentiles alike on the cross when he said it is finished, John 19.30. And just like Jeremiah said in an empty cistern, Jesus is buried in an empty tomb until his resurrection." So as great a portrait as Jeremiah is, remember, all these guys, ultimately they point to the faithfulness of Christ himself. Seeing Christ's faithfulness and the same faithfulness in the life of Jeremiah is a reminder that God gives grace for the faithfulness you and I need, whatever the circumstances are when we're rejected for speaking the truth, or when we face situations that can only go from bad to worse, it's okay to go down with the ship. We simply say, we pray, God, give us the grace to remain faithful. So for us, where do I need to practice a long, patient faithfulness? In your life, maybe now. If not now, it'll be later. Things I can't change. Perhaps situations that only seem to get worse. Where do I need that kind of staying, persistent faithfulness? And what does that kind of patient faithfulness look like in Jeremiah's life? Guys, this is where when we see a need in our own life, we can go to the Scriptures to see what does that look like. You can see it in Jeremiah, and you can see it in Jesus in the Gospels as well. Well, when Tennyson wound down his short peon of praise to the light brigade, he said this... When can their glory fade? Meaning, it won't. Oh, the wild charge they made. All the world wondered. Honor the charge they made. Honor the light brigade. Noble 600. That's the kind of faithfulness we want. We may not be praised here on earth. And if not, that's okay. We have higher praise, better praise to come in Christ's presence for faithfulness. Faithfulness whether we feel adequate or not. And faithfulness to the end no matter what that looks like. Please stand with me, and the worship team's going to come up and they'll lead us here in just a moment. But I want to read together from Psalm 56, verses 8 through 13, thinking of Jeremiah's experience and perhaps experiences you and I are in now or will be in the future, you see both God's provision and you see the reality of tears along the way. Let's read that together. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from failing, that I may walk before God in the light of life.